Hi, this is Nicholas Hammond. I created the role of Peter Parker as the amazing Spider-Man, and I'm here having a nice chat on the amazing Spider-Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'm Dapper Dang of Austin, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I too own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but Dan, those annuals, they don't count. Well, thanks for joining us for the ninth episode of the third season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors and an actor as they look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. If you want to learn everything that we know about Spidey, why not subscribe to our show starting back with the first season? You can enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We're everywhere. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. And in this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we've been following our favorite web-slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. In this episode, we are time-traveling to 1977 and turning on CBS to enjoy the first and only live-action Spider-Man television show premiering on primetime. Yes, we are talking about the amazing Spider-Man television show. And then we'll also be talking briefly about Electric Company and the Japanese Spider-Man show. The Amazing Spider-Man show is famous for a number of things, but after we get done giving the history of the show, I'm excited to tell you that I'll be talking to the show's star... Nicholas Hammond, who was the first person to play Peter Parker and the second person to ever play Spider-Man in live action. So hang around. You don't want to miss this awesome interview with Nicholas Hammond. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help us to continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page. Consider joining our team. To that point, we want to issue a special thanks to Josh and Dusty Morgan for becoming new patrons and supporting the show's existence. All right, Mark, let's hang from a rope attached to a helicopter as we hover over Los Angeles, I mean New York City, as we discuss the amazing Spider-Man television show. All right, Dan, well, I think before we get to the main event with uh, the Amazing Spider-Man television show and you know, Nicholas Hammond interview, we should kind of set this up a little bit by talking about some other live-action Spider-Man iterations, uh, including the first and in many ways kind of the most bizarre live-action Spider-Man iteration, 
That is the Spider-Man that appeared on the Electric Company television show, which uh, first debuted on October 21st, 1971. Dan, have you, are, are you familiar with the Electric Company Spidey at all? You know, I never watched it when I, I was a kid. I've kind of watched it a bit here and there as an adult. So it's not doesn't have quite the uh, nostalgia ring for me. But, you know, I've read a lot about it and I'm kind of excited to talk to you about it here today. If memory serves, Dan, when we talked to Mark Guggenheim one of the two times, he had actually mentioned Electric Company. It's kind of a early, I don't know if he would refer to it as an influence, but certainly an early impression of Spider-Man, which, you know, in a lot of ways, you got to figure a show like this, like this is probably the first time a lot of people saw Spider-Man if they weren't reading the comics. So Electric Company was a show on on public television. It was uh, President Nixon made literacy a priority for the nation and contracted the Children's Television Workshop to design a television show for those that were growing out of Sesame Street. So this was kind of like the next step up for kids. The main cast of Electric Company, they had characters like Fargo North, Decoder, Julia of the Jungle, and Easy Reader, which was voiced by the voice of God himself, Morgan Freeman. There were uh, also guests like Bill Cosby and Rena Marino on the show. I mean, like, like big stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. And so they started bringing superheroes onto the show. And the first superhero on the show was Letterman, who was actually voiced by Gene Wilder. But it wasn't until the fourth season that they introduced Spider-Man in a small segment, starting with Spidey meets the spoiler with you know, Morgan Freeman also narrating that as well. And he would appear in some of the episodes that included Spider-Man. And this Spidey was really weird. He would like dance around on screen, but he, the one thing he would never do is speak. But his thoughts and dialogue always appeared in balloons, just like in the comics, which is really interesting that they began to kind of, you know, after all the fear that, you know, kids would get seduced by comics in a negative way, this almost seemed to be almost an advertisement for like introducing kids to comics as ways to get into reading. But it was kind of off-putting, and it's a very weird way to have this Spider-Man. And, 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 and like, of course, like, the villains that are, you know, the, did he fight? I'm trying to remember. Was it just a tie-in book that had villains? He fought villains in this, or yeah, villains, absolutely right? He did, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it was just weird stuff. But but as I just alluded to, there was a tie-in book called Spidey Super Stories, uh, which came out in 1974, ran for 57 issues. I think the most famous issue of Spidey Super Stories for all of you fans of Infinity War and Endgame, of course, was Spider-Man and the cat versus Thanos and the Thanos copter. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite one is the one where Spider-Man fights the wall. Yes. The the uh, the wall of, I think it's the Met Stadium that comes to life. Yep, Shea Stadium. Another another incontinuity, Peter Parker's a Met fan moment. So uh, Yeah. <laughs> There's a great one where Spider-Man fights Plant Man, who is like this, uh, obviously he's a villain in the Marvel Universe, and he throws coconuts at Spider-Man from on top of coconut tree or whatever, a palm tree rather. So that was certainly interesting. Uh, So yeah, this was the first live action Spider-Man ever and it was super weird. And sure, why not? And the show ran for about 780 episodes, you know, no small amount and uh, was canceled in 1977. So man, 780 episodes in three years. Sorry, not three years, in six years. Pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Pretty prolific. So then that brings us, of course, to Amazing Spider-Man in 1977. And of course, this came out in the context of that and then the Incredible Hulk, the Lou Ferrigno series, debuting on made-for-television movies on CBS. There was also Doctor Strange in 1978. 
Captain America in 1979, and then you know, not a Marvel product, but there was also Wonder Woman with Linda Carter at this time. So this was this was the wave of of, of or the next wave of live action superhero stuff. And in a sort of ironic twist, the initial movie that debuted the series, which was kind of like two like episodes combined, was produced by Columbia Pictures Television. And that aired on September 14th in 1977. And, you know, it's a pretty interesting movie if you want to watch it. I mean, it, it was released around the world as a, a movie, except for in America. But we got to see it as a pilot, two-hour-long pilot. And it featured Spider-Man's origin, and it pitted him against an extortionist who claimed to use mind control to commit crimes. And it was actually a really huge success. It was like the, the top show when it came out. And it the, after the success of it, they brought a series to order and kind of changed things up in a, in a way. Uh, and I'll talk to Nicholas Hammond about that. Mark, you've watched this movie. I've watched this movie. What do you think about this movie as the first live action telling of Spider-Man's origin? You know, you know what, Dan? Like, I didn't see this movie until we were preparing for this episode. I got to admit, when I started watching it, I kind of expected to hate it. And upon watching it, I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. (laughs) It's just kind of weird and tonally incongruous to me as Spider-Man, but as its own thing from 1977, it's not bad. (laughs) Yeah, it has really a lot of fun moments. I think a lot of that is really due to Nicholas Hammond's performance as Peter Parker. He's this really kind of like go get him kind of guy in a way that Peter Parker is not really portrayed in the comics often. Like Nicholas Hammond is like a force to be reckoned with on this show. And then all the stunt work being done in the show is really, I think that's also the star of it is like, there's some goofy green screen stuff where he's kind of crawling without his costume around on the buildings. But when it gets to stunt stuff, like this was cutting edge in 1977. It's funny, the characterization and tell me if this is feels way off to you. Uh, it, it kind of, feels like spider-man 67 but live action yeah i think that's pretty solid they're still figuring out how this peter parker character works in in a large way and i think throughout the series you know you see the character develop in the way that they're going to showcase him by the end of it you know i don't wouldn't say he's a completely comics accurate peter parker but they've kind of figured out their own version of this guy the big focus both in the in the movie and then as it like settles into the regular series is is peter's relationship with the bugle which again kind of going back to Spider-Man 67 was really the through line of that show as well. I mean, it's like, it just seems like an easy, easy way to place Spider-Man and to set him up for adventures, right? And to that point, like it really goes in with the the bugle, but it kind of forgets the other elements of Peter's life. Like we see Aunt May like twice throughout the whole season and it's played, she's played by two different actresses and the Uncle Ben stuff is non-existent here. Like, he doesn't have any kind of moral responsibility to uphold justice other than his own kind of desire to do good. The Uncle Ben stuff is not there. And to that point, there's no supervillains in this show either. It's all kind of like, you know, like blue-collar crime that he's fighting or or hypnotists or some kind of spiritual being from another culture. And the show really kind of went out of its way to travel around the world with the character rather than kind of like have him fight a Dr. Octopus or something like that. But let's also be honest here. I mean, like trying to recreate a Green Goblin or a Doc Ock on a show like this would have been nigh impossible, right? Yeah, probably, probably. I mean, I think like Hulk 
had like Thor show up every now and again, but really, you know, it was him versus the military and, uh, you, you know, that's how they kept the budget down and stuff like that. And, you know, I think they did what they could, um, with the show. It's not perfect. I think the pacing is really slow, but probably was like fitting with most 1977, you know, stuff at the time. I guess this came out like right around the time of star Wars, but you know, TV was still finding its place. It's not like the, the golden age of TV that we find today. And so you kind of have to pick you know your your battles like enjoy what you can from it there was a clone episode right <laughs> yeah there's the night of the clones which had like nicholas hammond playing a clone and playing himself in two different ways and that's really fun and they did a bunch of special effects there so that he could be in the scene as two people and i think that's probably about the most far out that the episodes really ever got i mean there's like this one with like the raja which is this kind of like supernatural being that's haunting his campus. I don't know. I mean, Mark, I watched every episode of this recently, which was quite the undertaking uh, to watch in like a block. You know, you, you, there's definitely some that stood out more than others. Uh, there was also an episode that starred a, a young Sam Malone from 1979, right? Or uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Ted Danson shows up in the final episode of the show. They did this final two-hour adventure called The Chinese Web, which appeared in theaters as The Dragon's Challenge. Because there were three movies that came out of this. There was like The Amazing Spider-Man, there was Spider-Man Strikes Back, and then there was The Dragon's Challenge. I like to think that George Lucas stole the name Empire Strikes Back from Spidey Strikes Back. And that's where we got that from. But I, I doubt that was the case. Anything else on Amazing Spider-Man before we get to the Japanese Spider-Man? Sure. I mean, the show had its own troubles. You know, CBS bounced it around their schedule uh, a bunch of times, changing the nights and stuff that it played. And, you know, if reports are to be believed, it's been suggested that CBS was worried about becoming the superhero network. They had so many superhero shows that they were worried that people would, you know, treat them differently as such. I mean, it's kind of not childish because obviously now every network would kill to have all these Marvel and DC properties in their primetime lineup. But back then, you know, comics weren't quite handled the same way. And, and, and I think that the tone was very similar across all these shows. So they probably wanted to shake things up. So while the show was doing quite well, it was ultimately canceled because they felt like it was the weakest of the bunch. If reports are to be, Rumored. And on that note, like Stan Lee has also said a number of times that he really didn't like the show. But whatever. I mean, I had fun with it. I remember as a kid going to Blockbuster and seeing the VHS there on the shelves and thinking, wow, live action Spider Man before we got the Sam Raimi stuff and taking it home and having fun with it in the very limited way that I could, you know, because it wasn't like a full vision, but it was enough, you know, for my young mind. Did you watch this when you were a kid? I have vague memories of seeing bits and pieces of it, but not like a full memory, no. Well, let's talk about one that we really don't have a lot of connection to. At least I don't, Mark. No, uh, nor I. <laughs> I've watched like some of it now, but not quite as thoroughly as Amazing Spider-Man. That's the Japanese Spider-Man. Mark, how did this come to be? Well, I guess it was created in 1978 by Japan's Toei Company. H how do you pronounce this, Dan? Because I, I, I've, I've seen the joke in Dan Slot comics, but it's it's Spider-Man? Yeah, that's uh... the Toei Company's Spider-Man. 
you know, Toei Company, those who in the, are in the know, they're the guys who did like Power Rangers back in the day, or I guess are still doing Power Rangers, which is funny because the show is very much like that. It ran for what, 41 episodes? Yeah, it ran for 41 episodes. And it's, it's a show called a Tokusatu, at least if I'm pronouncing that right. And it kind of like this show was kind of like the blueprint for shows like that, which, you know, if you've seen Power Rangers, you've kind of seen an episode of Japanese Spider-Man. They're basically structured exactly the same way. And and the way this happened was that Marvel Comics made an arrangement with the Toei company where they got to make comics about the Toei characters. And I think that's where like ROM and stuff came from. I could be wrong. As part of that deal is that they could make the Toei company could make Japanese television out of Marvel characters. So they took Sp- Spider-Man and made him their own. But here's the thing, like beyond the costume, there's very little similarity between Spider-Man of the Japanese show in the comics. I mean, I would say almost no similarity other than the costume, which which of its own right shot out of his wristband or whatever, his or was it his waistband and would just fly onto his body in a hilarious way. But in the show the character is Takuya Yamashiro and that's their Peter Parker, I guess. And he's a motorcycle racing champion and he one day he witnesses a spacecraft called the Marveler falling to earth and his father decide and him decide to investigate the crash and his father is killed by aliens from the ship who are the start of this alien invasion known as the tetsu juji dan which translates to the steel cross squad because of course spider-man right there you go yeah of course uh so takuya is saved by an alien named galia who came from the spider star of, of course it's the spider star this is like secret scrolls to me, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, Galia, she gives Takuya spider powers and the ship, the Marveler, which itself could transform into a giant robot known as Leo Pardon, who if you've read Spider-Verse, you've seen Takuya as Spider-Man and his giant robot, Leo Pardon. And it's also a little Easter egg in Into the Spider-Verse, if you have keen eyes. And so in turn, he uses Leopardon and his own ninja skills to fight against the aliens and their master, Dr. Monster, whose kind of thing is he can turn animals into giant monsters with the help of his assistant, Amazonus. And so if this sounds like Power Rangers where like, you know, like Rita and Zed turn statues into giant monsters, that's exactly what it is because this show really helped to popularize his format and led to the creation of the Power Rangers, their kind of next most famous TV show. The funny thing about the show is that famously the Leopard on suit, which was used to create the giant like mech battle stuff was stolen halfway through the production. So the team had to reuse old clips to complete the shows, which is why he always would do the same kind of fight moves and why he used his giant sword to finish every single battle. And they even made a joke about that, I think, in Spider-Geddon, where uh, Leopardon destroys, I think, a bunch of the inheritors with his giant sword attack because it was the way he always finished things. It was an instant kill button. That was their way of wrapping up the episodes. Another funny bit from this before we finish this up is that throughout the show, they were always trying to figure out a new catchphrase for Spider-Man to say. And they tried out a bunch of things and none of them really ever worked. But the one that caught on is Spider-Man saying, I'm the emissary of hell. And that's 
what I think of Spider-Man as. So there you go. And I'm pretty sure that showed up in Spider-Verse as well. So Dan Slott must be, I think, I think he's been reported as a fan of this, uh, this show. So it's weird and it's fun and it's totally something different. I think even Stan Lee was a fan. In fact, we've got a clip of Stan Lee talking about it right here. Oh, I was happy that Spider-Man went to Japan. And in fact, it gave me an excuse to go to Japan. And I met with the people at Toei and um, we had a wonderful time. Well, I tried to explain all of the things about Spider-Man that I felt were important and would make people like the, the television series. And they told me how they um, expected to do the show and we had a very a very good meeting well to me a hero is somebody who does something to help other people even if it might be dangerous but he tries to do the right thing and he tries to help people and you don't have to have a superpower to be a hero, but it helps. Or I, I am terrible at remembering dates, but as soon as it was filmed years ago, they sent me um, a, a videotape of it, and I enjoyed it very much. Well, thank you, Stan, for talking about Japanese Spider-Man. So that kind of like rounds it all up. Those are the three big late 70s, Spider-Man live action television shows all kind of coming out around the same time. But let's talk about the most important one, Amazing Spider-Man. Mark, I can't wait for you to hear this interview that I got to do with Nicholas Hammond. This episode wouldn't be possible without the support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers, whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. If you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while also getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. Well, welcome back, everyone. I'm sitting down here today with none other than Nicholas Hammond, star of the Spider-Man television show from CBS from 1977. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Well, it's really thrilling to talk to you about this show, which I think had an influence on a lot of our listeners, their kind of history with the character of Spider-Man and and with pop culture in general. It was a, it was kind of a part of a force that kind of shook up the TV realm back in the 70s. Before we get into talking about the show specifically, I guess I kind of wanted to ask you that like, you know, take a look back at that era that the show came out in, before your work on the show, what was what are your memories of the cultural impact and identity of the Spider-Man character? What was your relationship to this character? Well, it, that's a very interesting question because you're right. I mean, now uh, you know through through hindsight, you know, with, with the enormous success of of the franchise of Spider-Man movies. You know, it's easy just to assume that he was always, you know, a, an extremely popular character in culture. But in fact, at least, I, I mean, I think I was probably fairly typical. I was well aware of the comic books, of the Spider-Man comic books. But I have to confess, I, I did not really distinguish him that much from, you know, Superman and, and, and the Phantom and all the other characters that you kind of grew up when you'd go into the store and you'd see all the comics on the shelf 
And, you know, there would be Spider-Man along with the others. So I think it was really going into the unknown a little bit. Uh, you know, you have to remember, it hasn't really been a show on TV. I mean, in the Batman and Robin series, but that was a send-up. That was a satire. And it was played for kind of laughs and, 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 and you know, making fun of them a little bit. So when the people from CBS talked to me and said, we're actually interested in showing this guy as a real person, we want people to forget that Peter Parker has these superpowers. When we get involved in his story and his life, you know, at school with his girlfriend and, and, and at work at the, at the newspaper, that you kind of then are jolted out of that when you suddenly realize, oh, yeah, but he also, you know, has these abilities and this strength and this agility and this stuff that he can do. And that interested me very much because I thought, you know, I'm not the right guy to be just somebody who, you know, he spends the whole time, you know, muscle bound in a suit and, and smashing people in the head. But I love the idea that basically Peter is leading a double life. I mean, I suppose Clark Kent was as well, but I like the idea that he was really fallible. You know, he had allergies. He was far from perfect. And that, to me, created a much more interesting character. So as soon as they started talking about that, I thought, well, maybe we have a chance here to present a, a, a superhero as something other than just a kind of two-dimensional cartoon. And, you know, I, I would like to think we went at least some way towards doing that, you know, uh, limited as we were budget-wise. And, of course, there was no CGI back in those days. So, of course, the effects by today's standards look, you know, incredibly simple. But the intention behind the show was always to try to make people imagine for themselves to try to identify what would I do if that spider had bitten me and I suddenly realized I had these powers. I mean, would I use it to rob banks? Would I use it to make myself rich? Or would I use it to try to do some good in the world? And, you know, so there was, there was a, always a kind of moral choice in the background that, at least for us, as we were making it, we were well aware of that. And, and I hope a little bit of that got across. Absolutely. I, I think it, it's very clear from the work. When, when you went through the process of getting the role of Peter Parker, what elements of his character were emphasized to you by the creators of the show? Like, what, what were they looking for and, and what was the process like to, to get that role? Yeah, it, it's interesting. You, you know, it, it just kind of came out of the blue. Uh, I was actually doing a play uh, in Los Angeles at my Taper Forum, and unbeknownst to me, a couple of the CBS executives uh, who had been looking and they'd been looking for an actor to play Peter, and they saw me in the show, and you know, my agent called and said, uh, "Listen, these guys would like to meet you," and I went in thinking. Well, it'll be very interesting to meet them, but I mean, there's no way in the world, you know, they're going to hire me to play, you know, a superhero. But as I say, as soon as they started explaining to me, we don't want a cardboard cutout. You know, we don't want Arnold Schwarzenegger. We want a guy who, when he walks down the street, he's no different from anybody else. And, um, and so we talked about 
Peter's life himself and what it would be like, you know, to, and, and the burden that that would have that it would place on you. You know, you can never tell anybody. You, you can't really have a, a serious girlfriend because you're going to put your life at risk with all the bad guys who are out after you. Um, and, and so I think the more we talked about it and I realized they, they wanted something a little bit more intelligent than just bang, boof, bing. So they kind of, are, you know, I tested, I, I did a screen test for them and then it, it all happened pretty quickly. And then I went back and I, I continued to do screen tests with the actors that were auditioning for the other roles, you know, Jim Jameson and, uh, you know, and, and for most of the other parts, because they wanted the chemistry to be right between, between Peter and, and everybody else in the show. And, you know, we were really lucky. We got Lisa Albacher in the pilot, and I think she's a terrific actress, and, you know, and, and Robert K. Simon. And, you know, I mean, they, they cast it up with, with really respected, good actors. And that, again, that was encouraging to me because I saw, oh, I, I can see what they're doing here. I mean, they, they actually are trying to make something out of this. And, you know, it was the highest rated pilot of the year for CBS. So they, they obviously they tapped into something that was out there that no one before that show kind of even knew was there. And then of course, incredible Hulk did the same at the same time. So it was, it was the start of a, of what became a kind of zeitgeist. So your Peter Parker shares a lot of similarities with the comic book character, but he's also very much yeah. his own distinct thing. Uh, who do you see your version of Peter Parker as? What, what do you think set him aside from the other interpretations? Well, that's a good question. I tried to put myself in his shoes and I tried to imagine, as I say, I, I, I never wanted him to look supremely confident. I never wanted him to look uh, like, oh, yes, I was born to do this. Uh, I, I remember right in the beginning in the pilot when I first have made the first suit and I take off the mask and look at myself in the mirror. And, you know, the, the director said, oh, just, you know, do whatever you like when you take the mask off. And so just instinctively, when I took the mask off, I just sort of started laughing, you know, and smiling in delight at like, this is amazing. Look what, I mean, you know, this is like not a joke, <laughs> but, you know, who would have ever thought this would be something I would be doing, you know, me, not me, me, Nicholas, but me, Peter, you know, that to try to make Peter the kind of guy who just could never actually quite believe that this had happened to him. Uh, instead of being somebody who thinks, you know, I am the king of the world and I'm now here to save planet earth, but just like a guy who's came thinking, I can't believe, I can't believe I've got this power. The and same so must I, be true for you as the actor as well. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this role. Well, there's that, you know, that that's right. There is always that dual thing because, you know, you, you arrive in the morning and it's your show and, you know, you're the one with the big with the big motorhome and you're the one that the story revolves around. And so you're right. It, it's very much a duality that way where there's a part of me that would arrive each morning and think, I can't believe I've got my own primetime series on CBS. You know, that's one of the bucket list dreams for every actor. Well, it certainly <laughs> was back in those days. 
and you know, CBS was the, was the number one network, and to have and to have a primetime series that was built around you was something that virtually everybody I knew in LA who was in the acting business was was aspiring to. So you know there was there was absolutely that, and then the character himself, you know that 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 I I always wanted to keep that kind of. Uh, that that surprise and excitement and sort of slight awe about what it was that had been given to him, and and I think it worked. Absolutely. Um. So you know, in terms of forming this character of Peter Parker, it seems that like throughout the two seasons, uh, you know, season stretched out, however you want to put it, it seems that the various scripts would try to like find new ways to get inside Peter's head or portray him in different ways, including like voiceover narration. Sometimes, sometimes they would try to take him into a romantic, you know, edge, you know, or he'd have a relationship with aunt may. Can can you speak to how the creators experimented with the uh, on-screen portrayal of the character? And, and I guess also your role in those experimentations, what came from you? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the writers were great in the sense that, you know, we did talk, a lot about trying to stretch him and show different sides to his character. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why they hired me is because having seen my earlier work, I think they realized I was somebody who was capable of taking the, taking the character in pretty much any direction they wanted him to go, you know? And so they created like, for instance, the episode where, you know, I've been cloned and there's a double and there's an evil Peter and a good Peter. And, you know, it's, it's, those are the sorts of things that an actor loves because it gives you a chance to sort of stretch your acting muscle. And I, so it was a kind of, it was a kind of joint effort where like the more they could, they saw what I was capable of doing or that I, you know, like to do, they say, Oh, well he can do that. So let's, let's, have let's include that you know let's show him being evil let's show him being kind let's show him being brave let's show, you know they 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 just kept expanding the sort of characteristics <laughs> of peter parker and of course i love that because there's nothing more fun for an actor than to be able to get a chance to show people what you can do well on so on, yeah on that note one of the things i liked about your role is that in the comics peter is often depicted as a very like reactionary character like he's not thinking yeah. 10 steps ahead he's often kind of just bumbling into situations and figuring out what to do but i liked what i liked about your portrayal of the role is just kind of how aggressive peter is to help out or get to the bottom of a case and get his scoop yeah was this something that you wanted to bring to the character I did. I wanted him to be fundamentally a moral person, you know, not in a boring way, but just in a quiet way. But, you know, I wanted, I wanted him to be somebody. Okay, well, let me go back a second. I spoke at a number of schools when I was playing that character because I would be invited to speak to school groups. And interestingly enough, a lot of inner city urban schools where my show and the character was very, very popular and very popular with, you know, uh, uh, non-white kids and white kids or, but, you know, but interestingly, uh, uh, very popular with minorities and no one could quite understand why. And I spoke at a lot of these schools and often the teachers would say to me, we love the fact that the kids watch your show because what you're doing in a, you know, in an entertaining um, uh, concept, but underneath it, there is the message that's getting across 
of, you know, when you have a choice of doing the right thing or the wrong thing, do the right thing. And that's what Peter would do. And, and as you say, I, I, I think we tried to portray him as a guy who always wanted to do the right thing. It didn't always succeed, but he always tried. And, and that was a message that I think resonated um, with, with kids. And, and, you know, I still have people come up to me, you know, who will say, and very often people of color, who will be, you know, people just slightly younger than me now who will say, when I was growing up, I used to watch that show every single week and I loved the show. And, and you thought it makes you feel so good to think you were a part of something that had a bit of an influence in a positive way on, on people's lives. So, yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I was very glad we did show him being kind of, as you would say, aggressively good. Yeah. How much do you think you mentioned that minorities really like attached mm. onto the character? Mm. Uh, how much do you think that has to do with the, the kind of like full body costume that he wears? I think a lot. And it's very interesting you would say that because you're one of the first people I've ever spoken to who actually realized that. Because I thought so when I, when I, cause I couldn't understand it. You know, I, I mean, like while I'm making the show and after, when I would be stopped on the street and people would say, Hey, Peter Parker, Hey, Spidey, you know, I mean, 50% of the time they would be non-white people. And I kept thinking, why am I, you know, the whitest guy in the world so popular with minorities? And then I came to the same conclusion. I thought that's because in that suit, it could be anybody of any race, any color. It, you know, it's not like Superman. It's not like Batman. You don't see a white man's face in a suit. You don't see any face. So I think for little kids, they could see themselves, regardless of who they were, if they were Chinese, if they were black, if they were whatever, they could project that that's me in that suit. And I think to this day, that's why Spider-Man costumes are so incredibly popular with little kids, because I think it's easier to imagine yourself doing that. If, if the, if the face is masked and the entire body is masked and we have no idea what the color of the skin is of the person inside that suit. So, I mean, I, of course we do when he takes the suit off, but nonetheless, the heroic deeds he's doing as Spider-Man, it's a, it's a kind of a neutral palette as it were. And you can, you can project whatever you want uh, of what that person looks like inside the suit. So I've always felt exactly the same way. It's not based on any scientific evidence. It's just, I think you're right. I think that's why he was the first superhero who really, really touched the nerve with all kids, not just white kids. I've always kind of, this is going to sound kind of maybe insane, but I've always kind of compared the character in a way to Santa Claus. The, the idea that like you can suspend rational belief to believe in this guy who flies around the world, but it also pervades all cultures. And I mean, in whatever form it takes, you know, whether in America or even in Australia, but like the idea that like as soon as Spider-Man goes into action, he's almost like a different character. You forget not not necessarily that it's Peter Parker, but it, it, it takes on another thing. And so everyone can latch onto it, even if they know Peter's a white guy on the inside. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's right. I mean, that's what I, I'm sort of trying to say the same thing. It, it is. It's a willing suspension of disbelief. And you just have to say, 
yeah, I'm going with this. I'm just going to go with this and accept it. And you're right. Yeah, Santa Claus, you know, he's got reindeer and a sleigh and he lands on the roof. And I'm just going to believe that. And I think that, <laughs> I think that's what you have to do. I thought with any superhero, but particularly with Spider-Man. And it's amazing, you know, the millions and millions who do. And, you know, as you say, now through the, uh, now, now we see through the franchise of the films, you know, and um, with Sony Pictures. And it's, it's great that he just keeps growing and growing and growing in popularity. So let's talk about that costume persona of Spider-Man. Obviously, yeah. most of your time was spent playing Peter, but when the drama called for it, out would come Spider-Man. I know that yeah. uh, for much of the action, se- action sequences, your stunt coordinator, Fred Waugh, would fill in for you. Can you talk about the divide for how you two worked together to create the version of the character? Yeah, uh, it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty straightforward. If there was ever a scene that involved Spider-Man speaking, it was always me because I never wanted another actor you know, Freddie was a wonderful stuntman, but he wasn't an actor. And I never thought it would be fair to the other actors in the scene to have to interact with him. So I would put the suit on. I would do virtually everything in the suit that was that was on the ground. I mean, for insurance reasons, they just didn't let me get out on the sides of buildings or, you know, get even on the edges of rooftops. Sure, that um, makes sense. And, but also he could do it better than me. There was also the matter of time. You know, we were shooting an hour show every seven days. And if I, and the stunts would take a very long time to film. So they always had a second crew, what we called the B crew, that would go out with Freddie. And they could spend all day doing wall climbs, doing whatever they had to do, doing fights. And it didn't slow down the production because the A crew was always working with me. And so we would be filming all the drama scenes, all the Peter scenes and the scenes of Spider-Man, you know, interacting with other people while the stunt, while the stunt guys were all out filming the stunts. So it was a, it was a practical thing in many ways. And even though we were quite different physically, uh, Fred was quite a bit smaller than I was, but he, and he was a lot older than I was, but he was very agile. He'd been an ex-circus performer. So he developed his own little kind of physical persona of, you know, when he was in the suit uh, of kind of, you know, slightly hunched and slightly walking with a slightly sort of crab walk sure, yeah. that you know, w- w- was a little different from mine, but I kind of went with it because I thought, okay, well, we'll just assume that that's the sort of physical mode Spider-Man goes into when he's in like fight mode, you know? Whereas if I was doing a scene where I'm just talking to somebody, I was just, I would try to just be as naturalistic as possible. Again, for the sake of the other actors, I didn't want them to think, oh, I'm just talking to a, you know, to a dummy here. I'm, I'm, I, there's actually a person inside that suit, a, a thinking, you know, intelligent, uh, uh, person. And so that's kind of the way Freddie and I worked. So, I mean, to be honest with you, our paths didn't cross all that often because once we sort of at the beginning of each episode had a production meeting and kind of worked out what the story was and who was doing what, he would go his way and I would go mine. And um, our paths would sometimes not cross from the entire episode. And I wouldn't even know 
what sort of stunts they were doing because I'd be, I'd be too busy, you know, uh, as you know, from the show, I mean, Peter was in virtually every scene. So I didn't have a lot of time off to go and see what the stunt guys were doing. So sometimes until I saw the actual episode on the air, I wasn't sure, you know, precisely what those guys had done. Um, but it worked, you know, it was, it was a good working relationship and we liked each other a lot and it, and it, and it got on, we got on very well. So I'm so glad you brought up the kind of like crab walk, uh, uh, Spider-Man does that it's very distinct. You know, I guess I'm curious, you know, this being the first serious on-screen depiction of Spider-Man, you know, there was the electric playground stuff that was kind of silly. Uh, what, what kind of weight was there on you to really kind of land how the, the physicality of this role? Well, it was it was kind of making it up as you went along. I mean, yeah. you know, we, I, as far as I was concerned, I just I thought, you know, I didn't want people to ever forget that that's Peter inside that suit, you know, in the sense that I, I know we've talked about the thing that it could be anybody of any color. And that's true. But I guess what I what I mean is I didn't want them to forget that's a real person. That's not some creature from outer space. That's a real person. He's put a suit on. But under that suit is a is a living, breathing young man who's got his own problems, who's got his own weaknesses, his own frailties, and yet, but and he's also got his own passions and 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 moral compass. So I guess the stuff I did in the suit was probably I would like to think a little more naturalistic than what mm-hmm. Freddie did. When Freddie put the suit on, we really went into, you know, superhero territory as far as. You know, this is a being who and and I I thought well that kind of works because as I just was saying, I assumed there was a thing that was sort of like a fight mode that that Spider Man would go into when he was called to action and that that's when his physicality would would actually change somewhat. So I think that was my justification and and but. When I had the suit on, I wasn't trying to be anything other than a human being. I wasn't trying to look like a spider. I wasn't trying to walk like a spider. I was trying to walk like a person and, 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 and behave like a person, uh, you know, sort of duality there. But, it, but I just I think it kind of worked because the two characters were essentially different. Let's talk about your unique costume. What was the experience like working in a suit like that? And, and I have to ask on a more silly note. How does it feel to be an act acting like as the guy in spandex in a scene with actors dressed like normally? It it's it it's an effort. I mean, you've got to that was that was the hardest thing for me was getting over, which I just had to do, getting over the sense of feeling foolish, you know, because you're you're dead right. You know, everybody else, you know, the other actors are putting on a certain tie or if it's a woman a dress. And there, you know, pulling on a, a, a basically what was like a rubber wetsuit that was painted, you know, blue and red, and 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 a mask. And you know, I also the first couple of times I put it on, you know, the crew where they're all sort of chuckling and haha. I, I tried to create an atmosphere where, okay, guys, let's not make fun of this. You know, let's not treat this like what we're doing is a joke. Let's treat this like he's just another character in this scene. And his, he's in wardrobe the way everybody else is in wardrobe. 
And it's interesting, you know, within a couple of days, that sort of attitude went away. Again, because the only sort of um, template had been the Batman and Robin show, I think people, uh, you know, people would come on the show and I would, I would tell the producers, please make it clear to the guest actors when they come on, we are not doing Batman and Robin. We don't want them to come in and do a clown performance, to do a, a performance that's going to get laughs. We want them to come in and play this as realistically as they possibly can. And people did, and it changed the atmosphere immediately on the set. You know, nobody treated it like what we were doing was stupid or a joke. Everyone treated it like this is a show. This is a drama. You know, this is a, a, a drama like every other drama on television. But it's just, it's just a, a different kind of drama. And so... But getting back to your thing about the suit, I, I was part of that process. I was part of having to get over a sense of thinking, oh, come on, Nicholas, this is, you know, look, you're dressing up like some kind of, you know, character you'd see walking through a shopping mall. <laughs> and, and, but I did. I just made myself get over it. I made myself and I thought, no, you know, you have a responsibility here. You have a responsibility for people watching this. You know, you, you have to treat with respect the people who love this character and who love this show and who love, you know, the history of Marvel Comics and Stan Lee and the entire background that had gone before me, you know, of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And I thought, you have to honor that and you have to take with great respect and gratitude the fact that you've been given the torch to carry. So as soon as I got that in my head, I got over feeling silly. And, you know, and as I say, also, I've got to say with the costume, I mean, with the spider suit, it kept evolving because, I mean, even from a point of view of the wardrobe and design people, you, you know, it was a, it was a work in progress the whole time. They kept trying different kinds of material and, you know, some would be so unbelievably hot that filming out on the streets of LA in summer, you know, you, you were just, you were on the verge of passing out the whole time and, you know, pouring sweat inside the suit. And then the eyes would mist up from the inside and I couldn't see anything. And, you know, so they had to keep trying different variations of material and of stuff to make the eyes out of boots and everything until they finally, by kind of the end of season one, we found, you know, a, 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 a suit that worked well. But it was all, we were all just inventing it as we went, you know, because it was new territory for everybody. I can't imagine wearing that suit during the stunts, which looked oftentimes really dangerous and technically advanced. They like, were. There was some handicap stuff dangerous. before their, like That's before right. the time. Like it was pretty awesome. Do, do you have any stories about any of these particularly difficult stunts? Yeah, I do. And, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up because in this day of CGI, Everyone just assumes that every stunt, you know, it has been has been computer generated or done in a studio where, you know, it's all totally safe and nothing like, you know, with green screen and that kind of thing. No, no, no. They were real. They were absolutely real. I mean, when you see, you know, when you see Freddy, when you see Spider-Man, let's say, climbing, you know, up 65 stories on the outside of a skyscraper in Hong Kong, he's really doing it. Yeah. He is actually doing that. He's on the outside of that building 
And here he is, you know, hanging on to the side of the building with a cable, you know, and a harness, or going out the window on the 81st floor of the Empire State Building in New York, you know, and he did it. And I mean, he just climbed out there. And so everybody said, oh, those all climbs, obviously, they must have been like a flat surface on the, the studio floor and you just tuned the camera sideways. I said, no, 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 none of that. There's absolutely none of that. Every single thing you see is real. And it was, it was old school filmmaking where if you want to do a stunt of a guy, you know, swinging from one building rooftop to another, he's really got to do it. So as limited as they were, you know, with our technology and as kind of simple as so much of the effects look now in retrospect, we did have at least the integrity of, you know, our action sequences or real action sequences. It's really uh, amazing. The one you mentioned of him swinging from building to building is the one I think about the most, like, Wow, what what guts uh, yeah. he must have had! And he did, and and I'll just say technically, you're absolutely right. Long before the days of, of the invention of the Steadicam, Fred himself had invented. Well, he didn't really invent, but it was very simple. But he put a small 15 millimeter film camera inside a football helmet, and put the helmet. So when you see from his point of view from Spider-Man's point of view, going up the side of a building or looking over the edge of a roof down below, that's that helmet camera. He had one, and it was a big, bulky, awkward thing. So he's not only having to climb up the side of a building or swing from one building to another, but his balance has been completely, you know, knocked um, off by having this heavy helmet with a camera in it on his head. So, yeah, I think I think it was pretty remarkable what he did. I have to think, like, for your production team, in that same era of television, you have, like, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk on CBS that had special effects, you know, demands for special effects for the characters. But Spider-Man is a uniquely weird character and power set that I think, like, conventional effects didn't really quite figure out. Can can you speak to these kind of difficulties that the character provided? I mean, it must be unique to overcome them. I guess I can. I, I can't speak for what, you know, people like Bill had to do, Bill Bixby had to do on, on Hulk, you know, um, or, or Wonder Woman. You're right. I mean, I think, I think I'm right in saying that it was a little bit more of a challenge for us because what was expected of Spider-Man was greater than what was expected of those characters in the sense that yes, Wonder Woman, you know, could you know, lasso people with her magic rope and she could shield off bullets and, and she, you know, had all of her great powers. But I, I, I mean, look, I might, may be wrong. I've never spoken to Linda about this, but it seemed to me from a kind of stunt point of view that it would have been an easier thing to accomplish. I mean, no one was asking Wonder Woman to get up on top of the Empire State Building and, <laughs> and climb out the outside of the building, you know? And so... I think what, from what I could gather from both the shows, and of course with Bill Bixby, he had the advantage of he never had to transform. They just had another actor, you know, they had Lou doing it. So, so he, he didn't actually have to undergo a sort of character transformation the way, the way um, Peter did, Peter Parker. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, there was there was that additional challenge. I just could I couldn't speak for them as far as whether our show was technically more of a challenge than theirs. But all I know is, is that we were sort of fearless in the way we took that on. And I really even wonder whether today, you know, unions and insurance companies would even allow no. a show to be shot the way we shot that show. I mean, you know, we can't do. I mean, stuff we did in Hong Kong in the Dragons challenge that, you know, you know, diving into the Hong Kong Harbor, which is like lethally dangerous water, you know, I mean, with every disease under the sun in that water, and, and even the local <laughs> Chinese thought we were nuts to have people going in that water. But, you know, we just didn't think twice about it. We thought, oh, yeah, that was cool. You know, so let's do that. Let's have, let's have Peter Parker or Spider-Man fall off the side of a barge and go straight into Hong Kong Harbor. And we just shoot it, you know. <laughs> and somehow we all survived. The show had a really great, unique supporting cast with a, a, a lot of changes during its two seasons. I thought you seemed to have a particularly great on-screen rapport with Michael Pataki as Captain Barbara yeah. and uh, Chip yeah. Fields as Rita Conway, two characters who were invented yeah. completely for the show. You know, and the show took a lot of liberty in that regard. But can you speak to the show's supporting cast and characters that you enjoyed playing against? Well, I, I, I liked them all very much, but as I've, I've Lisa in the pilot, you know, I thought she was perfect. And then Ellen Bree was very good too. But Michael and I became really good friends. I mean, we used to see each other socially and have dinner at each other's houses. I really hit it off with him. He, he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. He has a very, very naughty sense of humor, which was kind of a nice sort of um, a release on that set because, you know, it was a, it was a hard show, but Michael was very funny and always, you know, with a joke between every, every scene. And, and we, so he was a great pleasure. I had, I had a lot of respect for, for Robert S. Simon, you know, and I've, of course, learned afterwards. I, I've seen him now in a number of films from the fifties and sixties. And, you know, what a fine actor he was. And I was convinced while we were working together and she was just adorable. I mean, she was just great. And, you know, it was, it was again. It was. It, we were one of the first shows that that had a, a you know a black female as one of the central characters on the series. I know now that doesn't seem like anything, but back then you know, it was a big deal. And her daughter Kim Fields to this day you know, talks about she, you know Kip used to bring little Kim. Kim was about four or five, and used to bring her to the set. And you know, still talks about how. Coming to see her mom work on this series, you know, this big CBS series, you know, that it was such a huge thing for her. And, and uh, yeah, so I would say those were the three that I really, really hit it off with. And I, I used to love it when I'd open up the script and I'd say, oh, good, I've got a Captain Barbera scene today, or, you know, or I've got a scene <laughs> with um, Jonah Jameson, you know. And, and so it was, it was a very happy group, a very happy and we became a very tight little group because, of course, the directors come and go, but we, you know, it was, it was just like the four or five of us every week. And so you, you, you really kind of depend on each other. And, and we, had a good, we had a good relationship. That was one of the saddest things for me when it was canceled was just not being able to work with those people anymore, you know. And so and that's what I missed the most was, was having our little Spider-Man family broken up. But. They were they were all terrific, and I was grateful that they were chosen. I thought they picked just the right people. 
I love that you mentioned there being like a black co-lead on the show because one of the things I like yeah. about the comic so much is that they tackle these kind of issues and the show wasn't afraid to tackle difficult topics too, like uh, racial equality, slumlords, That's right. tokenism, and not to mention the international cast that you assembled across all the, you know, various countries you traveled yeah. to. Was this important to the casting crew making these shows? Well, it was certainly important to me. I mean, Rosalind Chow played my girlfriend in, in the uh, Dragon's Challenge. I mean, Rosalind and I still st- are friends and she still works. And she, you know, will say, you know, for an Asian girl, it was like her first major role. And, you know, and I, for the next three or four years or longer, every time I'd be sent a script that had the role in it for a young Asian female, I would get straight on the phone and say, you've got to see Rosalind Chow. She's, you know, fantastic young actress. And so I think she recognizes that the show in many ways was, was a breakthrough, you know, that not afraid to put an Asian girl as the romantic love interest for the um, Caucasian lead. And, um, you know, she's just incredibly beautiful and very, very good actress. So, yeah, I think we were a little bit of a breakthrough. And again, that might be part of the answer to the question of why was she so popular with minorities? Because we weren't afraid to just have anybody, uh, you know, who anybody of any background play the character. And, um, and I think that was a really good thing and something we could all be proud of. There's a whole episode on prison reform. Like it's re- I was That's really right. shocked looking at it now. I mean, these are issues we're still struggling with today in, in this country. So I, I was really That's pleased right. to rewatch it. Yeah, I, I, I remember that when we shot in that case. <laughs> and again, you know, these days it just feels a set. No, no, no. We went to a prison. <laughs> yeah. We went to an actual prison full of real prisoners. And I remember thinking, oh boy, I am never speeding. I'm never getting a traffic ticket. I never want to walk back into this place again as long as I live. Um, <laughs> but but now we shot in the prison. And, and and I have to say, a lot of them were fans of the show, you know? <laughs> um, so it, it, I thought, oh, good. Well, there's an audience. There's so many things to talk about with this show, but I guess I'm curious, what has your relationship been with the character since the end of the show? You know, has Marvel or Sony ever reached out about bringing you back in any small way? No, they haven't. To answer your question, I do have people constantly asking me. And I mean constantly. I don't think a day goes on social media. Somebody doesn't send a message saying, are you going to be in the new Spider-Man movie? They haven't. I mean, it's quite, it was quite understandable when Stan you know, would be the guy who would make a cameo in each of their films. And so he should have been, you know, absolutely should have been. Whether they might reach out to me now, if they make another one, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd be delighted to do it because I think it would, I think it would be something that the fans of the show would find, you know, a, a, a delightful. But that's totally their call. You know, obviously, that's something for them to decide. I mean, to come in as Peter's, you know, uncle or father or mentor or something and be on screen and have everybody go, oh, look who that is. I mean, because even from the Quentin Tarantino movie, I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, look, it's Peter Parker. (laughs) (laughs) If we did it, it would be fun. It would be fun. The last question is one that I ask everybody who appears on the show. I mean, it's a little bit different for you, but I guess I'm curious, what does it mean to you personally 
that you got to play a defining role in the creation of the icon of Spider-Man. Oh, it means a great deal. It means a great deal. I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by it, and I try to treat it with the respect I think it deserves. Um, as I was saying earlier, I, I understand that I was part of a legacy that was given to me that had been created by Stan Lee and that it built up a, a fan base of millions of people around the world. And I was one of the people that was lucky enough to um, be the, the face of that. And for all the people who watched my show, I think it's my responsibility to treat their love of the show and love of the character with the, with the respect it deserves. So it's, it's a hugely important thing to me. I mean, look, I, I had a slightly similar experience by playing Friedrich von Trapp in The Sound of Music because of the love that people have for that film and for those characters. So I'd had a little bit of experience of knowing what it was like to have the responsibility of having been in an iconic production that, that lasts forever. And in some ways, Spider-Man is another version of that uh, with a different kind of audience, but one that is just as um, devoted to um, their character and their art form. And it would be incredibly ungrateful of me not to treat, be appreciative of that and treat it with the respect it deserves. So I'll always, always be hugely grateful that I got an opportunity to play, well, to originate the character of Peter Parker um, as a living person, as a, as a human being. And the fact that I created that character is something that it will be a source, is always a source of pleasure and pride to me. Well, that's wonderful. So if, if people wanted to keep up with you now, like, what are you doing? Where can they keep up with you? What's going on? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, well, funnily enough, because I'm constantly asked if I will, you know, appear at comic cons and things like that. And it just happens to work with my schedule that yes, I'm going to be at something called super mega fest, which is in Framingham, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. And I think that's the second weekend of November. So I, I'll be over there then. Um, I'm still doing publicity at the moment for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I'm certainly going to come to uh, Megafest because it's a pleasure for me to listen to uh, Spider-Man fans and to get their uh, reactions. And, of course, I'll be signing autographs and photos and people can have their photo taken and whatever they'd like. But it, it, I'm looking forward to it very much. So that's where I'll be. Uh, if I do another one, I don't know. They're very hard for me to fit in with everything else I'm doing, but I'll definitely be in in Boston area. I think it's November 16th and 17th. Anyway, I, I, it'll be up on a website somewhere, and I'd love to see as many people as possible. Well, you guys heard it there. Go check him out at that convention. It should be a, gr a great time, I imagine. And and Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been very generous with your time, and it's been a real pleasure That's to talk my pleasure. to you. Thank you very much, and good luck. Thank you. Well, Dan, that was a lot of fun. And thanks again to Nicholas Hammond for joining us for our ninth episode of our third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Thanks again, Nicholas. Nicholas wanted me to let everybody listening know He'll be a guest at MegaFest in Framingham, Massachusetts on November 16th and 17th. 
He said he's really looking forward to fans talking to him about the show and that you shouldn't be shy about coming up to him and asking him questions. Just go right up to him and tell him that Amazing Spider Talk sent you and hope that starts a conversation because he really was like dying to talk to people who love the show. I get the feeling that maybe he doesn't hear about it very much, but we, we know there's a big number of you out there that first fell in love with Spider-Man by watching the show on CBS. Awesome. Now, Dan, what else do we have coming up next on the show? Well, Mark, we sat down a couple weeks ago with our friends at the Untold Talks of Spider-Man podcast to review Spider-Man Life Story by Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. The review is available early on Patreon, but now we're going to be releasing that conversation to you guys to listen to. So we hope you'll enjoy it when it does drop into your feed. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a uh, special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 29. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of the Nick Spencer run. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, B-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork, this time from Barry Kitson. Also, be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, who are back in action and coming out weekly. It's a lot of awesome podcasts for you guys to listen to. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. And a special thank you to Rick Coast, our amazing, spectacular, adjectiveless web of editor who cut together this very episode. Thanks again, Rick. So, Dan, uh, where, where can we find you on the social medias? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk all the live long day talking about Spider-Man. A little bit, a little quiet recently. Just a little peek into my personal life. I have recently moved into a home where I'm now the parent to eight international students from China and Brazil. So I've kind of become a dad of eight. So I've been a little bit quieter on the internet. You know, come say hi to me and wish me luck in my new role as a parent to eight high school boys, Mark. Oh, that sounds easy, Dan. Yeah, no problem at all. Uh, <laughs> so also, there's like a gap in, in scheduling here on the show. You know why. I'm, I, I've got a lot going on in my life. I'm embracing it with a smile and, and trying to make a really uh, into a really awesome experience. So, Mark, what about you? What are you up to recently? Yeah, well, I mean, nothing as exceptional as what you're doing, but you, of course, can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, and you can always find my book wherever books are sold, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And yes, I, I second Dan. Let's, you know, if if there are gaps, let's just all be patient. We're, we're, we're getting there, guys. We're, 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 we we want to make sure we keep giving you the best content we can give you. So, uh, you know, if that means a little bit of a break longer than usual, it's just because we want to deliver something good for you. Uh, so, Mark, as I'm tucking in my eight children at night, I want to impart good values upon them. What should I tell them to remember? Oh, man. Well... I would say, at least in terms of podcasts, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Good night, sweethearts. Wow, that's creepy.